0: weeks ago, um, I had this phenomenal, you know, your life will never be the same again moment. Those moments where life just tends to stand still. And we all know those moments, don't we? It's the moment you see your bride walking down the aisle for the first time. The moment you, you hold your first child. The moment you move and bring your whole family to go to a new city. Or as a single, you move into a new city and there's all these wonders that just capture your attention. Well, in this moment it occurred, I wasn't even looking for it. Allie and I were downtown Chicago, walking around, and we walked into a gallery. And there it was. More than just oil on canvas. It was beautiful, and it was this whole new world. I was lost. I stopped, I stared, and I couldn't get my humor to move anywhere else. There was these thick strokes of oil that made the painting look like hewn stone. And it, in, it, in its vibrant landscape, all it did was call you to stare to, to, to explore its edges. Then the gallery owner who saw me, and I don't know if he thought I had deep pockets, which was not the case, and he came up and he began showing this fader. He had this fader that faced it. And the more you increase the light, decrease the light. It was like a sunrise and a sunset. The whole texture of the painting would change. It was like you were entering into a world that was on fast forward. I was mesmerized, and just for a moment, I felt alone. A million miles from anywhere else, from anyone else. Lost in the, re- the recreation, it was a recreation of Monet's garden, Giverny, France. And after seeing this painting, I asked myself, you know, how can I ever be the same? How can any other painting compare to this painting? Maybe I'm being over dramatic. And I would try to show you a picture of it, but the the the, the, the textures, the depth of the oil could never be captured as some your picture. It has to be on the canvas. You have to see it like from Rasa, Lithuanian. You know, it was, it was beautiful. And we've all had moments like these. Maybe for you, it wasn't a piece of art. Maybe for you, it was the first time you shopped at IKEA. <laughs> or shopping at Trader Joe's and you found two-buck Chuck. I don't know. Maybe for you it was the first time you discovered you know, luxury sheets and you realized you never want to get out of bed again. You know? And you can never sleep anywhere else again. Or maybe it was the first time you saw the stars in the sky in like a Missouri wood or a Kansas plane. More than you could have ever imagined. Shooting stars more frequent than you thought. The constellations like Great Bear and Orion are having this gladiatorial battle covered in people. We all have these moments. Some, when we look back, they seem trivial. a like shot. Others seem more terrific than we could have remembered and thought. But in these moments, our world expands and we shrink. For whatever reason, we find ourselves speechless, but afterwards we can't stop talking about it, right? It's, it's those moments everything around us is so distant. People many times when they use the word transcendence or transcendent experience, this is what they're talking about. And some of the older theologians would use the language of holiness. Something that's completely other, something that's completely different. It's incomparable. And you know deep down inside of you that everything, or at least a small part of you, has changed. When the passage read for us this morning, we learn from the prophet Isaiah that you've not encountered God unless you've encountered Him in this way, or better said, you've not encountered God unless you've been changed by Him. Think about it. Some of us know about God, but have we encountered Him? And some of you may think you've even encountered God, but the question is, are your is your life changed because of it? You've not encountered God unless you've been changed.
1: There's no neutral
0: background when we encounter God. We either push in further to find out more, or we push him away. We we either long for more of who he is or less. He either epitomizes all that's right in the world, or he is the exact representation of everything that's keeping you from your dreams. You cannot encounter God unless, or you, you haven't encountered God unless you've been changed by him. Well, as we peer into Isaiah's encounter this morning... We're compelled to ask three questions. First, who is this God? Who is this God? Not not who we want him to be, not who we want to make him into, but who is he really as portrayed throughout Scripture? Secondly, how do we know we've encountered God? And then thirdly, what's the alternative? So, who is God? How do we know we've actually encountered him? And what's the alternative? Before we dive into those questions, though, we need to have some context, right? We need to get our bearings straight on where we are in the story of Isaiah. And the king Isaiah mentions here in chapter 6, verse 1, is Uzziah. He was a pretty successful king of Judah. Um, he, he had brought great prosperity to Israel. They were still a power house in the region. But around 740 B.C., Uzziah dies. And it's here and these times of transition where our lives feel shaky and a time where our small real worlds they feel shook up and when we feel vulnerable and destruction looks like it's right on the horizon this is when God shows up in magnificent ways and when he does he shows up to remind his people who he is this is where Isaiah encounters God when the tides change from rolling in and the year that King Uzziah died we saw it. Now, when we ask the question, who is God, one of the best answers that Isaiah chapter 6 gives us can be summarized in three little words God is holy. And this word holy, we don't use that all too often in conversation, do we? Unless it's for an adjective. You know, for a shocking situation or we stubbed their toe at the end of the bed. You know, holy mackerel or holy cow or holy other things. You know that. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I mean, tell a lot about a culture by what new words and new idioms that we use. I mean, we've got tons of words for physical intimacy and tons of idioms that we use in our culture. But what's fascinating to me is that there is one word that I feel like hasn't changed for centuries. We sung about it this morning, and it's in our prayer, the Lord's Prayer, hallowed, to make something holy. And this word, it's remained unchanged in the Lord's Prayer for centuries. Other things have moved around in terms of new translations to make it more modern, but even in the modern versions, we still use this old English word, don't we? Because we've got nothing else in common day speech to replace it that captures the same meaning but is more common in conversation. For most Americans nowadays, and probably for a lot of us in here, what are the images that come to your mind when you think of holy or holiness or, uh, or hallowed? You know, how many times have you said, oh, no, you know, I just want God to be hallowed? right here in this space. I mean we don't we don't we don't use that language in everyday conversation too often unless we are doing the Lord's prayer. But the image that comes to my mind sometimes are where women have to wear homemade dresses down to their ankles and you've got the men yelling downhill fire from stone in shopping centers. Like this this language of holiness it comes with baggage to a lot of our culture. But throughout Isaiah it's so beautiful is that holiness is never associated with cliches. It's never ever associated with the commonplace. But it's always associated with mystery. With something that's different, that's other. That's outside of our concepts. And throughout the book of Isaiah, God is uniquely called the Holy One of Israel. Even here in our passage, we have what is God called Holy, 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 which is the Hebrew's language way of saying that God is the most other being imaginable. None can compare so when we ask the question, who is God, we really have to ask, what is holiness? Really. And I think a good place to start is with a quote from R.C. Sproul. He's a wiser, older preacher. And he says, the first prayer I learned as a child was the simple table prayer, God is great, God is good, and we, and we thank him for this food. Amen. The two virtues assigned to God in this prayer, greatness and goodness, may be captured by one So let's look at how great God is displayed in this passage. In verse 1, Isaiah knows Uzziah is lying dead. He sees God still sitting tall upon his throne from generation to generation. Uzziah has been placed down in the tomb, but he sees God lifted high and reigning supreme. When chaos surrounds God, is still unshaken. And his robe, it fills the corridors of the temple such that Isaiah is standing on his tippy-toes trying to get a good glimpse of who God is. Then we get to see these creatures that are unlike anything that National Geographic has Church. in its pages. You know, th- th- their very name, Seraphim, means burning, but their own burning brilliance pales in comparison to the one that they're encircling. And in verse 2, we see this Holy One of Israel is so great. These winged angels are compelled to take two of their six wings and cover their eyes so the sight of God's great beauty would not stop their hearts in awe. They take another two of their six wings and they cover their feet because they know no creature can ever compare with their creator. And then they take the last two wings and they dedicate them to the movements of encircling God's this picture that reminds us why idolatry is so horrendous, whether it be material or whether it be spiritual. I mean, when ancient Israel portrayed God as the image of a golden calf, they were saying God was like a cow. When He's above everything else and like nothing else, nothing man can create can ever compare to the Creator. And when we look to spiritual idols, which we see in many of our own lives. For example, when we put our money first, our sex life first, our, com- our comfort first, we tell God, these are greater than him, more transcendent, more important, and we ask him to encircle our lives. I mean, can you imagine if the sun revolved around the earth? I mean, scientists did for a while, right? That isn't the way the solar system works. That isn't the way gravity works. That's not the way God's design works. And maybe some of us have been living a lie for, for decades. Telling the story to ourselves that small things are actually ultimate things. The greater always pulls the lesser into his woman, not the other way around. But not only is God outlandishly great, he's also absolutely good. Bless you. God is not merely set apart, but forever put together, whole, perfect, He's complete in his divine community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And many of us, when we think of God as holy or good, we can think of God as just being morally better than us, morally more pure than we could have imagined. And we think he's just a better being, and then we stop there. But it's here. If we stop there, then we miss the mark. And A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he makes an important observation. God's holiness is not simply the best, we know infinitely better. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind. to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. I mean, we've heard, we have a hard time grasping a being that never wrestles through insecurity. We have a hard time grasping a being that never desires to twist the rules to get ahead, never stops loving, never manipulates another for affirmation, never ever wants anything for creation except what is also its ultimate best, because he's that good. It's here that we step into mystery because that's not who we are. We're broken, and we do twist the rules to seek after affirmation. We do manipulate in order to feel good about ourselves or to seek our own good. God, who never needed an ounce of love from anyone, created all of creation out of the goodness of his being. I mean, this is where we hear with Isaiah, the seraphim singing to one another about such a one, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord over all the armies of heaven. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it's exactly this kind of God, an incomprehensibly good God, that will not hide himself for his creation, but he longs to reveal, and he's always purposed to reveal his beauty even in the midst of a broken world. And like it turns on a light in the midst of a cluttered closet, his brilliance it reveals ugliness wherever it might lie. Brokenness in whatever crevice it may be, as far as his dominion rings. And this is exactly what it means for God to not only be great, not only to be good, but to be both, to be holy. Once again, A.W. Tozer, he says, The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of creation are insepar- inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio and takes the life of her child. Behold you your God, incomprehensibly good and unconditionally great, or as Isaiah would say, the one who is holy, holy, holy. And so I ask you this morning, is this your experience of who Does God's goodness challenge your perspectives and your preferences? Or does your God just affirm whatever you want? Do you sing God's songs, or does he sing yours? And if all your God does is affirm you, then I have to ask who created whom in this scenario. Because the God who breathed light into, into existence, the Triune God finds utter desire and utter fulfillment in who he is, and created all that we see, creates us to affirm him. Now, in your story, you may not have had an experience like Isaiah. I'm not saying that you should have or I should have. But we've all encountered God in one way or another. It just may have been more subtle than angels and visions, Okay. Uh, for example, when we look at the world around us, we meet the work of his hands. When we, when we hear the scriptures read, we hear his voice calling to us to come and to know him. When we enter the community, the church, we feel him care for us with hands and his feet. When we enter the disciplines of prayer and fasting and serving and so on, we encounter his spirit forming the depths of our soul. In moments like these, we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond to when we encounter him then, Do you explain away the beauty of nature? Do you sidestep, sidestep the truth of scripture? Do you avoid the church because it gets too close and personal? It's like keeping a winning lottery ticket on your dresser. Never catching it in and the riches of who God is. And waiting for you to come and lavish and encounter it in where he dwells. But even still... When we do understand who he is, we have to ask, how do we know we've encountered him not a your imitation or the self-made illusion, right? How do we know we're not just fooling ourselves? How do we know we've encountered the Holy God in scripture? Well, if you've encountered God, there comes a point where you experience a sense of desperate confession, like a pebble placed next to the Rocky Mountains, and before the presence of God, we look so small. And look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. The clearer we see who God is, the clearer we see who we are, and the more we realize how desperate we are. I mean, the seraphim, they couldn't even look at God in all of his glory, but as Isaiah scans throughout the throne room of God within the temple... And he looks with curiosity and he finally realizes what he's seeing. He stands with wide eyes at the realization of his own brokenness. And you see throughout chapters one through five, a lot of people are asking, okay, why is Isaiah's call in chapter six? The prophet's call to his ministry. Wouldn't that be in chapter one? That's that's prophet role one oh one. Why is it that why is that six chapters into the And what's so beautiful about the story here, because this is the way many times we are, is that Isaiah had been proclaiming woes on Judah for their injustice, for their drunkenness, their greed and idolatry. But now in the presence of God, he sees just how woeful he is. Just how small he is. Just how desperate he is. He becomes, woe is me. Not just Judah, but woe is me. I'm Lost. So we have to ask ourselves, no matter where we are in our journey, do you recognize how desperate you are outside of God's grace? You've not encountered God unless you've been found desperate before Him. If a piece of art or a store or the stars can bring us to amazement, what about the Creator? The very author and perfecter of our faith? We don't stop there. And quickly, this desperation, it turns to desperate confession. Midway through verse 5, Isaiah says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, a desperate confession, it takes shape in the acknowledgement that God is good and we're not. That God is pure and we're dirty. It's submitting that God knows you better than you do, that he knows what's best for you better than you do. And that in a dispute, he's right and you're wrong. When we encounter God, we're not only seeing how small we are, but just how messed up we are. says, so, so even the good things that we try to do are like muddy rags. He says later on in chapter 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, even the good things we do, are like a polluted garment how messed up we are. Once he's experienced the holiness of God, even the good things he does, he can see the the misshapen elements of them, the brokenness, to the point that even the things that seem like are doing great good in our city, if it's done in our own strength without the grace of God, they're polluted garments. So we ask ourselves, do we really recognize how broken we are? Are we honest with ourselves? I'm a good person. Well, None of us in the presence of God can ever say how good we are except by the grace of God. Are you honest about who you are? Do not encounter God unless, unless you confess confessed your brokenness. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. When we come before God, we experience desperate confession, but he doesn't just leave us there in our room. Verses 6 and 7, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Atonement. God's forgiveness, his covering of our sin, this washing away of our impurity is something only he can do. And if we don't get the first part, we'll never get to experience the second part. No matter how desperate or transparent we are, we also have to realize that that's not what saves us either. That's not what makes us clean. Just because you're transparent about your brokenness isn't what makes you whole. But it's God's atoning work and his declaration that you are no longer guilty. No longer carrying the baggage of the past. No longer seen as an adulterer. No longer seen as a liar. No longer seen as a drunk or as a failure. But we are his and we're forgiven and we're made clean. God making a way we would never be able to stand there or not, whether we're prophets <laughs> preachers, presidents, or the Pope none could stand before God on their own and scripture never calls us here's the thing, as human beings to look at how good we are to find our value in our work but God's word is always pointing to the Holy One of Israel He's always pointing, it's always pointing to God. Look to him, the one whose goodness is so great that he makes a way to defeat the curse and our brokenness. In the gospel, we stand in awe and find our meaning, our identity, and our forgiveness. So what do you depend on for your morals? Will you give him the authority in your life to say that you are clean, Jesus Christ? Some of us in here, we don't struggle with seeing how broken we are, Right? Some of us in here struggle with such immense guilt that we never allow God's words of saying you are forgiven and actually sink in. Will you allow Him to have the authority to say you are clean in Jesus Christ? You've not encountered God until you've rested in His powerful arms of forgiveness. But like most transcendent experiences, uh, when we've encountered God in such a way changes our lives. Everything about who we are is different from that point on. Woe is me changes now with charred lips to saying, here am I. Sent me. It's this desperation takes on this lifelong devotion. And we open ourselves up to whatever this great and good God has for us. Because we've seen ourselves and we've seen who he is. And when we've seen who he is, we'll go wherever he us. Many of us, when we hear this, though, we think that means going anywhere else but here. That means going overseas. And I don't think that's an important calling for some. It becomes a cop-out for many. It becomes an opportunity for us to push away and not think about how God has strategically placed us where we are now. It's always about when I get there. And if it's always about when I get there, you'll never get there. But it's got to be about where God has you here? How does he? How has he gifted you? How has he wired you in a particular vocation? And how is your work uniquely different because of your walk with Christ? It might not be that God is asking you to move to a small town, village, or a small village in Uganda, but He's calling you to care for your next door neighbor who's a shut-in. He may be empowering you as an engineer to build brilliant bridges that care for our city, or empowering you. To have gifted vision to to create and design thoughtful dividers for church space. He may be calling you to vocalize your faith with someone you've been so quiet with, over a cup of coffee, through a friendship, or maybe he's asking you to stand up for the needs of your immigrant neighbor. Don't limit God's call in your life to overseas mission. That's a part of it. We can never say that's not a part of it, but that's not all of it. And if we just look at Isaiah's call and see that and apply it to ourselves as somewhere far away, it will never be the reality that God has designed to be. So what is he asking you to do here? You've not encountered God until you've been changed by him here. Well, when we survey the options, uh, really there are only two available responses to God's, God's presence. Seeing God for who he is and encountering with him where he is Or the alternative. And what's the alternative? Uh, The alternative, the only other option, is a defiant denial of the truth.
1: There are really smart
0: people who wrestle with God's existence and what God has done in Christ. But it's not merely about our wits, but it also has to be about our wills. How are we going to choose? Really smart people, like I said, have wrestled through the reality of God's existence, but at the end of the day, we all have a choice. And Soren Kierkegaard, he's this brilliant theologian uh, of the 19th century. And he's also a philosopher. And he hits the point hard when he says, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. Well, instance, we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. Who God is, who He's called us to be. Fairly simple. I mean, there are moments where we seek community, we seek wisdom, we seek guidance. But the question is whether we'll accept the one that we are encountering in His Word. In Isaiah's day, Judah, they even before Uzziah's death, they totally disregarded God in His ways. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 24, Isaiah describes Judah as this way it says, They've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and having despised the word of the Lord, pushed it away. It no longer had bearing on how they lived or who they were seeking in their lives. And so, in their defiant denial, God gives them over in chapter 6, verse 10, to dull hearts, blind eyes, and deaf ears. Which is a way of saying, their truth detectors have been broken. They've been skewed. When they deny the truth, it instantly begins to skew everything else that we perceive. It's partly because this life of denial can only Uh, also end up in a lifelong devotion, which we cultivate. You see, when we encounter God and we find our moments in desperate confession and receiving God's atoning work and then ending in lifelong devotion, also when we choose defiant denial, it also takes work. It takes cultivation. It's also a lifelong devotion. The difference is it's in. And here we see that it ends in destruction. Isaiah, it's called a... This burdensome task. Just think about him, you know, as a preacher. And what 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 a job, right? He's called, okay, you're going to go and tell a message to Judah, but they're not going to listen to you. Um, so you're going to go and nobody's really going to listen to what you're saying. <laughs> and you can almost imagine Isaiah, before the presence of God, yes, any task is great because you're working for a great God. But at the same time, that's a pretty burdensome role to play. And so he says and almost echoing the psalmist. You to do this, God? How long? I mean, this is overwhelming. And God says in verse 11, "Till cities lie waste without inhabitant, an and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, some sort of tree, whose stump remains when it is felled." Defiant denial leads to dull hearts. It leads to destroyed cities. And being in the heart of our downtown, it's critical for us as a church to be focusing, to be listening, to be to be submitting to God's call and who He is and how He's revealing Himself. You see, this is the trajectory of avoiding God is broken cities. And without the Holy One of Israel, nothing can survive. But this chapter. It ends with a small sliver of hope at the very end of verse 13. There's this strange phrase, right? The holy seed is its stump. You see what's going on there? This, the holy seed is its stump. And we see hints of the gospel in the midst of this desert. There's, there's this bubbling up of hope. Something that there might be restoration. God's grace always makes a way for a few to not only survive, but to become like him in Holiness. Remember our passage, God is described as holy, 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 set apart, magnificent. But it's not merely him who's described as holy, but there is an offspring, to seed. Children who will actually take on his character as being holy. By encountering the Holy One of Israel, they'll become holy offspring. And you see, the Holy One of Israel, he's always longed that all of humanity would be his holy children. That we live in the image that we are called to bear from the creation, the very beginning of creation. And Just like Isaiah, we cannot stand on our own, we cannot be holy on our own. So this is why in God's timing, he left this throne of heaven, the God that we saw here in Isaiah 6, with the seraphim buzzing around him, singing, holy, 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 he leaves his throne, and he becomes human over 2,000 years ago. Of Jesus Christ, so that we might take, he might take our guilt and make ultimate atonement for our sins. The coal that touched the prophet's lips was merely a foretaste of what is to come, the King of kings who would one day, on our behalf, and for the whole world, die on a cross. And the mystery of the holy, holy, holy God was to be portrayed on a rugged bloody cross, with Jesus being buried for three days and borrowed two. And the earth could not contain the overflowing glory of this great God, such that Jesus Christ arose to be at the center of the choir again. And when we look at Revelation chapter 4, verse eight, we hear Isaiah 6 echo here. We hear the angelic voices continuing on saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. It's of this holy God, Jesus Christ, that it said, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So I ask you this morning, as we reflect on Isaiah 6, as we think and long to encounter God, are you desperate? Are you willing to confess your brokenness? Are you willing to rest in His forgiveness that He so freely gives and will you give him your life, your devotion? We've encountered it this morning in church, So none of us can say we have not. The question is, what will we be changed? And how will we respond? Right. Our Father, we come before you shaken by your holy presence. That You are grandishly great in the confidence that we could